Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, January 12th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 31. This episode is brought to you by FAM Taught Me, my fertility awareness education initiative. My fertility awareness blogs are available on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash fam taught me. And you can also follow me on Instagram at fam taught me to learn more. I'm available for one-on-one consultations and I'd love to work with you on your menstrual or fertility goals. And I've also created a paper charting journal for fertility awareness and you can order it by heading over to the Patreon blog. In this episode, I'd like to do a few things. First, I want to talk about different types of menstrual pain, or we could even more broadly say pelvic pain. And I also want this discussion on pain to include mental pain, because the effects of menstruation are not solely physical. There is a mind-body connection that seems apparent when we go through the process of menstruating. And then I want to lay out a guide to autonomous menstrual healing. And the reason I want to do that is not to say that practitioners aren't valid or that they can't help you or that you shouldn't explore the more clinical options available, but because my work mainly focuses on people who've already been disenfranchised by the healthcare system. And I feel that with my own experiences, along with hearing the experiences of others, that those interventions aren't necessarily equipped to get to the root of why we have widespread menstrual pain in the first place. The culture that we have around menstrual pain is almost a joke, so much so that it's considered commonplace and normal. Young people are told to expect pain from their first menstruations, they aren't given any resources to understand menstruation, and then they're told to medicate their pain, or menstruation entirely, away, and carry on with a smile and a capitalist work ethic. The acronym PMS is commonly likened to menstruation, as if to say that abdominal pain and cramping are synonymous with menstruation itself. And many of us haven't explored ideas beyond that way of thinking before. I know that I surely hadn't before, you know, I was exposed to the concepts of fertility awareness and body literacy. So it's part of what this podcast is going to kind of bring together for us. The cultural expectations are further exacerbated by menstrual product marketing for disposable menstrual products, menstrual relief medications, and contraceptives. Marketing menstruation has put our bodies in direct relation to their productive output, as if menstruation is a burden we must get beyond or suppress. We're told to aspire to be like cis men and people's bodies who do not menstruate, who aren't affected by this process. The brunt of these campaigns is to not let your menstrual cycle hold you back. For example, let's look at some of the major companies that we might know about. Tampax, quote, exists for girls who don't let their periods or anything else get in their way. Playtex Sport, quote, gives you the confidence to be your best with every move, every day. Be unstoppable. Kotex says, don't put your dreams on hold for your period. Don't let it get in your way with the right tampons, pads, and liners. Midol, the company that makes um, suppressants for menstrual pain, says, Keep getting stuff done on and off your period. And the contraceptive seasonals campaign says, Disco, tango, hip-hop, non-stop. So all of these campaigns serve to tell you the same message, that having a menstrual cycle is a negative aspect of your life, and that it doesn't serve you in any way. It's a useless, messy, and painful burden. 
We are affected by the way that menstruation is portrayed, not just in advertising, but also in film and television, through social media and other cultural mediums. It's expected that people who menstruate bear the brunt of pain because this is, quote, just how our bodies work. Even some practitioners will claim this. But I'm here to push back on that information and to also reclaim a space for us to discuss healthy, painless menstruation and how we can get ourselves there as individuals and also as a collective. It's very ironic to me that gynecologists will claim that the vagina doesn't need any help, that it's self-cleaning and all of this other leave-it-alone rhetoric. Yet we have widespread menstrual pain, which goes completely unaddressed. And their only solution, in a clinical sense, is to shut down the entire menstrual cycle, and therefore the entire hormonal benefits of the menstrual cycle. We are simply never taught that there are benefits to the menstrual cycle, only drawbacks to being an imperfect female-bodied person, and this is obviously steeped in patriarchy. Another part of the reason why we've lost out on research to fund solving menstrual pain in the last 60 or so years is directly correlated with contraceptives being rebranded as more than just contraceptives, but instead as reproductive health pills, when they're really anything but. And if you can just shut down this menstrual cycle, doesn't this mean that you've then fixed the problem of menstrual pain? Well, hardly. And it certainly doesn't help people who menstruate get to the root of why they have pain. It's become a band-aid fix to avoid having to deal with a much deeper wound. So let's start there. The term for painful menstruation is called dysmenorrhea. It affects between 50 and 90% of the Western world, and yet it's been severely understudied. When it has been studied, it's been limited to studying a loss of productive output, such as statistics like 140 million work hours are lost due to symptoms associated with dysmenorrhea, totaling a loss of $2 billion a year in the United States. This, I believe, is an unhelpful framing because it doesn't focus on quality of life and respect for the needs of people who experience a menstrual cycle. Instead, it focuses on the detriment of menstrual pain to productivity, a capitalist message that only focuses on how we can make workers more efficient. Thinking beyond this paradigm, pain associated with menstruation takes an immense toll on the physical and mental health of those who experience it, and treatment is shamefully limited. Part of the reason I think we have so much trouble solving menstrual pain is that we don't tell people who menstruate where it comes from. So people have no real basis for understanding where this pain is coming from, and furthermore are told it's a natural part of experiencing their body, all they can really do is suppress that pain. And that's fair, because no one should suffer in pain. But we can do better than that, because in this case the pain is a sign of an issue. Whether that is hormonal, dietary, or physiological, it's not coming from nowhere. And it's certainly not normal or what we should expect a menstruation to be like month after month for roughly a third of our lives. Dysmenorrhea is broken down into two main categories, primary and secondary. Primary dysmenorrhea is a menstrual pain which occurs in the absence of pelvic or gynecological pathology or disease. It's characterized by abdominal pain and cramping occurring shortly before or during the onset of menstruation. These may be sharp intermittent spasms or dull pain in the abdomen and lower back, and other symptoms may include nausea or vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, fever, headaches, and migraines, breast tenderness, joint pain, abdominal bloating, and lightheadedness. There are some root causes of primary dysmenorrhea. 
The first is prostaglandins. These are a group of active lipid compounds made by almost every cell in the body, and they function similar to a hormone. They perform multiple functions, including dilation and constriction of blood vessels, regulating acute inflammation, and also act as smooth muscle contractors and relaxers, which begin their action a few days before menstruation, building up to aid in the expulsion of the endometrium, the uterine lining, a part of the natural process of bleeding. Prostaglandins do their job and then are broken down quickly by the body. They only carry out their actions in the immediate vicinity of where they are produced, which helps to regulate and limit their actions. Prostaglandins are part of your body's healing defense, and they don't inherently cause pain, but combined with other pelvic issues, high levels of prostaglandins can result in painful cramping. Then there's pelvic blood stagnation. Blood supply is rarely discussed when it comes to menstruation, but its impact cannot be understated. Let's talk about the physiology of the body for a second here. Your fresh blood supply is pumped from your heart into the aorta where it travels downward through the diaphragm and it descends through the abdominal aorta. The abdominal aorta is then what's feeding all of your abdominal organs. And if you think about it, that's pretty much everything except for your brain, lungs, and heart. This is not only blood itself, but it's also oxygen and it's responsible for circulating your hormones and bringing in essential nutrients to your cells, so the blood is like a carrier. When we improve blood flow, the plumbing of the body, we allow the body to do what it knows how to do. If they aren't getting the proper nutrients, they can't always perform their intended purpose, so your organs may be suffering from a lack of good plumbing. So the abdominal aorta is what brings blood to all of your internal reproductive organs and pelvic organs. But when the diaphragm, which it must pass through, is constantly in a constricted state due to stress, anxiety, or other factors, you can actually have a situation where the blood flow is now restricted to these vital abdominal areas. Ovarian arteries and veins also lie along the psoas muscle, which is a deep-seated core muscle that is part of your hip flexors. So there can be some physiological reasons why blood might not be flowing well enough to your pelvis and reproductive organs, restricting oxygen, restricting nutrients, and restricting your hormones from properly coming in and out as they need to. This leads to the concept of a congested uterus. Most people have never heard of this, but signs of it include painful menstruation, dark blood at the beginning or end of the cycle, and lots of clotting that's present in the blood. And the root cause of this is an abdominal imbalance due to a restriction of pelvic blood flow. The alignment of the organs is the other big missing piece when it comes to discussing painful menstruation. The uterus is an organ that is intended to be flexible at different times of the menstrual cycle and, of course, during pregnancy, labor, and birth. The uterus can shift out of its normal anatomical position, which is normally behind the bladder, in the center of the pelvis, about 1.5 inches above the pubic bone. It's held in position only by the vaginal wall and the ligaments, which are pretty elastic. If the ligaments and muscles are weakened, the uterus can fall down, forward, backward, or to either side. And this can be caused by a number of different factors that impact the pelvis, uh, such as impacts on the lower back, sacrum, tailbone, 
car accidents, a difficult labor if you've had children before, poor pelvic bone alignment, high impact dancing, aerobic exercise, high heeled shoes, and more. So keeping these physiological elements to dysmenorrhea in mind, I think are important to getting to the root cause of maybe why you are feeling pain. Lastly, unfortunately, there's no regulation on what materials can be used in conventional menstrual products. And endocrine disrupting chemicals saturate our environment. Our personal care products, our menstrual products are no exception to that. So cotton products like tampons certainly have some level of pesticide exposure. Cotton is one of the worst crops for pesticide contamination because almost all of it is genetically modified and what we call Roundup Ready. Specifically, the chemical in question is called glyphosate, which is now a known carcinogen. The bleaching process of cotton and rayon also creates dioxins and furons, which are both known for their impact on hormones. Fragrances used in menstrual products are full of proprietary, undisclosed chemicals. So yet another possible cause of primary dysmenorrhea should include a discussion on the quality of menstrual products and whether they cause infection, cancer risk, and endocrine disruption. To be clear in this regard, we don't have enough evidence outside of anecdotes and a few court precedents, which is not to say that there is no risk of toxic menstrual products, but rather that there isn't enough science that has been done about this topic. So I want to be clear that scientific inquiry is just as important when we as women and people who menstruate have been historically left out of science. This type of investigation when we feel symptoms is how we get more studies funded. So someone, a scientist, must always ask a question first in order for research to commence. When we observe issues happening to us in real time, this means they are deserving of further investigation. So when it comes to menstrual products, we definitely need science to confirm what we think is going on based on many people's anecdotes at this point. I've found that when people switch to different products or they stop using disposable products at all, there is an improvement that happens in their menstrual cycle. So this is not to be discounted. So right there, you have four different possible reasons for primary dysmenorrhea. Some are going to be easier to address than others, and I'll get to that a little later on. But now I want to talk about secondary dysmenorrhea. Secondary dysmenorrhea is a menstrual pain which does result from an identifiable organic disease. This pain may not be limited to menstruation itself, but may present itself as pelvic pain at any time during your cycle. The first thing I'm going to talk about is endometriosis. This inflammatory disease affects an estimated 176 million people worldwide, is often underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed with up to a 10-year delay in proper diagnosis. It's characterized by chronic debilitating pelvic and menstrual pain, heavier long menstruations, bowel and urinary disorders, painful sexual activity, lower back pain, allergies, migraines, and fatigue. Endo is so unexplored that we don't even have all the information on how it works, but I will tell you what we do know. With endo, there's the presence of tissue growing outside of the womb. The name can be misleading because this tissue is structurally different and behaves differently than normal endometrium uterine lining. Immune dysfunction seems to be a core component, preventing the body from clearing endometrial lesions and allowing them to proliferate. The question is why this happens. 
Current theories include a genetic component, exposure to toxins, and intestinal permeability, leading to bacterial translocation to the reproductive organs or elsewhere in the pelvis. Endometriosis causes a reduced quality of life, infertility, and chronic pain, sometimes even beyond the pelvic area. Adenomyosis is a similar disease to endo where dysfunctional tissue grows into the muscular walls of the uterus, causing them to thicken. This leads to not only heavy menstruations, but also pelvic pain because of the pressure of this enlarged organ pressing against the others. Then there are uterine fibroids, which are benign growths in or on the uterine muscle which cause pain, severe cramping, and sometimes frequent urination from the size of the fibroid pressing on the bladder. They're often reported with heavy bleeding, but aren't usually the cause of it and have a connection to excess estrogen as well as a possible genetic component. Sexually transmitted infections such as chlamydia can often cause pelvic inflammatory reactions, and they are usually accompanied with other symptoms besides inflammation and pelvic pain such as abnormal discharge, itchiness, and sometimes fever. Ovarian cysts are benign ovarian cysts, which occur when your follicles, which develop your egg to maturity, become abnormally large, filled with fluid, and only sometimes cause pain. They usually resolve on their own, but they're most likely to cause pain if they rupture, in which case secondary symptoms like fever may be present. And lastly, another cause of secondary dysmenorrhea may be the IUD or intrauterine device. The main mode of action in both the hormonal and non-hormonal IUD is inflammation. Your body is aware of the object inside of your uterus and tells your immune system to rush to the area to assess the situation and clean up the mess. So thousands of immune cells rush to the cervix, thickening the cervical mucus and preventing fertility. This creates constant localized inflammation, which sometimes results in pain. The body may even make attempts to expel the device through the process of cramping, which, contrary to what your doctor may have told you, can occur for months beyond the initial insertion procedure. Now I want to talk about the clinical treatment of dysmenorrhea. Both primary and secondary dysmenorrhea are normally treated with either NSAIDs, which is pain relief medication, or COCs, combined oral contraceptives. NSAIDs have a failure rate of up to 20% with alleviating dysmenorrhea among many adverse symptoms like damage to the gastrointestinal system, stomach ulcers, renal toxicity, and more. And COCs are another popular choice when the topic of menstrual pain comes up, even though very few randomized controlled trials have actually been conducted to demonstrate their efficacy. Besides the fact that there's little evidence to support its use for this purpose, COCs also come with many adverse effects like nausea, vomiting, headaches, risk of tenuous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, or myocardial infraction from estrogen use. So it needs to be said that neither of these interventions actually get to the root of someone's menstrual pain. They can only suppress symptoms of that pain. This means that the longer someone relies on these, the longer they go without further investigation into the root causes of their dysmenorrhea. Then there are the psychological symptoms of menstruation. These are no less painful or disruptive than physical menstrual pain, but they're often dismissed or, again, just considered normal. PMS, or premenstrual syndrome, is said to affect somewhere between 30 and 80% of menstruators with symptoms including headaches and migraines, irritability, anxiety, depression, anger, or rage, feelings of being overwhelmed or sensitive to rejection, 
fatigue, as well as social withdrawal. In the days leading up to menstruation, the body's hormones are dropping, especially progesterone, which is a calming anti-anxiety hormone. Unlike the cultural stigma that proclaims that people suffering from PMS are hormonal, it is actually a lack of your happy menstrual hormones, estrogen and progesterone at this time, that are causing the psychological changes. So this is just another way that culture has portrayed the menstrual cycle in a way that stigmatizes people who experience it. PMDD, or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, is more severe, affecting 3-8% to of menstruators. The symptoms of PMDD may include depression, anxiety, severe irritability, crying spells, suicidal thoughts, and other severe mood swings that disrupt daily life and make it difficult to function with the normal quality of life. Both of these conditions, as well as the discussion on secondary dysmenorrhea, are huge topics, and so this was meant to give you an introduction to what these are, but I hope to create more specific resources around each of these in the future. This then begs the question of what is a normal menstruation supposed to look and feel like? I do find that all of this talk about pain, though necessary, can be really rough, so I wanted to make space to talk about what a healthy menstruation really is. First off, we want a normalization of body functions. So this means that we want the body to be able to go through the process of menstruation easily and smoothly. We would call this homeostasis, or a tendency towards balance. A typical menstruation lasts 3-7 to days and should contain about 50 milliliters of blood. That's only around 3 tablespoons in total. We also want hemodynamics, which means the dynamics of blood flow. We want the dynamics of blood flow to be working smoothly and to not stagnate. Blood flow coming in brings oxygen, nutrients, and hormones, and blood flow coming out discards waste, toxins, and assures new blood returns in its place. Menstrual blood should also be a bright red blood with a liquid flow and minimal clotting. Clots should be no larger than the size of a dime because a healthy body produces natural anticoagulants to thin the uterine lining and release it more easily. Nowhere else in the body would we say that blood clots are normal, yet when it comes to menstruation, clots are largely dismissed as benign when they are actually an obvious symptom of a lack of hemodynamics and blood stagnation. And lastly, a healthy menstruation has no more than 30 minutes of uncomfortability. When your body is in a state of homeostasis and hemodynamics are working as intended, the body doesn't have to work so hard to release that blood and thus there's no need for severe contractions that you'll see with cramping. And I know 30 minutes sounds like that's wildly different from your experience, but this is what a healthy menstruation should actually look like. The bottom line here is that we don't have to suffer. In fact, your body is probably trying to tell you something, and if you can tap in and listen to that and make changes to help heal yourself, you will see your body respond. But here's the good part. I believe we can all take action. There's no reason why we can't make changes which will put our bodies in a better state to make the process of menstruating less painful and, dare I say, even enjoyable. So here I want to introduce my guide to autonomous action to healing dysmenorrhea. Strategy one is ritualizing your menstruation. We're the only society in history without menstrual rituals, and we just happen to be the society with the most widespread menstrual pain. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. If we didn't make young menstruators think that they needed to suffer to come of age, 
of course, you might know the trope that womanhood is pain. Maybe we wouldn't have such a negative outlook about menstruation as a whole. Recognizing your bleeding body helps prepare you and acknowledges you as a whole being. We could also begin reframing PMS as a positive thing. The premenstrual phase is a real thing. Hormonally, the arc of progesterone is falling, the body is preparing to shed uterine lining, but it doesn't always have to be a syndrome. We don't always have to be pathologized. And we can begin to separate the experience of so-called PMS with a more positive form of premenstrual feelings and practices, which enforce a happier menstrual bleed. After about day 25 of my cycle, my cycles are typically arriving between 29 and 33 days, or somewhere around a week before my bleed, I begin to acknowledge the slowdown. Resting is a key component because progesterone, which is high after ovulation, is a calming, sleepy hormone. Rather than fight against this, I give in to this, allowing for more naps, more rest time, less social outings and partying. Researchers have found that sleep deprivation can lead to increased pain sensitivity, which isn't helpful for your impending menstruation. So making sure you take rest when you need it is a vital component to addressing pain. Vaginal steaming, also brings heat and oils of the plant into the cervix and the uterus to loosen up stagnant blood material and warm the womb. One to three cycles of steaming can reduce and even eliminate menstrual pain. If you'd like, check out episode 29 to learn more about how to perform a steam. I enjoy this as part of my ritualizing and being able to prepare 30 minutes to focus on my impending bleed has been transformative for me and actually allowed for me to enjoy the process of menstruation. Then there's food cycling. Most all traditional cultures preach warm foods leading up to menstruation. In traditional Chinese medicine, for instance, blood is a yin, a cold substance. So to balance this, you want to increase yang or warmth through the foods that you eat. Some of these preparations can include soups with rich fatty bone broths, stews, chilies, one-pan roasted dishes, crock-pot foods, cooked fish, red meats, mineral-rich foods like dark leafy green vegetables, and even starchy vegetables like beets, carrots, and squashes. Really pay attention to what your body's asking you to eat and make sure to honor that uh, rather than fight against it, which I think diet culture definitely encourages. You may also find it useful to find an appropriate or modified stretching routine. Things like yoga and other types of stretching are wonderful practices, but you should modify them to be easiest on your body before you menstruate. Limiting twists and inversion poses can be helpful, as well as focusing on hip pelvis openers, lower back stretches, and poses which release tension in the abdomen and uterus. For example, poses to avoid would be downward dog or headstands, But poses to encourage would be reclined lotus pose, reclined butterfly, child's pose, cat and cow poses. Significant exercise should be limited in the days leading up to menstruation as your uterus is preparing to bleed. To bring this back to the first suggestion, prioritize rest and ease at this time. Lastly, you want to respect your own introversion. You may feel more cloudy-headed and unable to make clear decisions in the days leading up to menstruation. Instead of being frantic about this, write down the decisions you want to make, and if you can, wait until you're bleeding to revisit them. 
Respect that you don't necessarily want to hang out in public with large groups of people or be particularly social. I think it's important to recognize when you need alone time to go over emotional and spiritual aspects of the month and to prepare for a new cycle where you can look forward to making all the moves. The summary of this whole strategy, strategy one, ritualizing your menstruation, is to practice menstrual mindfulness. Make up your own rituals for the week before menstruation and learn to practice them. Resting more, modified stretching and meditation, vaginal steaming, warming foods, and respecting your need for a time set aside for reflection can have a positive impact on your experience. Strategy two is nourishing your menstruation. A discussion on whole foods should always come first, so I want to talk about what to eat and what not to eat before getting to the supplements. The first thing is dairy. Holstein cows are primarily used in western pasteurized dairy production, and their milk contains an inflammatory protein called A1 casein, which stimulates the production of cytokines from the immune system. Not everyone will have this sensitivity, but for those that do, it can make cramps worse from immune disruption. And because dairy is full of rich fats, which are otherwise good for you before a bleed, try dairy which comes from Jersey cows, sheep, or goats. For some people, nightshade vegetables like tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, and potatoes can trigger inflammation and subsequent period pain. Eliminating them may be in your best interest in the week before you bleed to see if your menstruation improves. You also want to eat more mineral-rich animal-based foods such as fish, red meat, organ meat, shellfish than you do grains in the week leading up to your bleed, and also just in general. This will ensure that you consume more B vitamins, iron, magnesium, zinc, calcium, and all the positive minerals for a healthy period. The reason for this focus on animal-based foods is that they contain more minerals per gram, and on top of this, the form of the minerals that they contain are much more well-absorbed or bioavailable to your body than plant foods, which must go through a conversion process or are higher in anti-nutrients which block absorption of these minerals. So animal foods ensure that these minerals can enter your cells quickly and when you need them. The last piece of advice on whole foods is to slow down on raw foods. As I mentioned earlier, raw, cold foods are more likely to irritate menstrual cramps than warm foods. Because much of the soil is depleted from years of farming industrialization and the process of tilling, and if you want to learn more about that, you can visit my earlier episode on compost and why it's important to getting nutrients in the soil we're eating. Supplementation may still be beneficial, even if you are eating whole foods high in these minerals. You might want to consider upping you know, a certain few that are, that are particularly useful for the menstrual cycle. The first mineral is magnesium. The menstrual cycle is simply dependent on this wonderful mineral. First off, magnesium taken daily lowers prostaglandins, and we know that too many prostaglandins causes pain. It helps improve insulin sensitivity, thyroid hormone function, normalizes estrogen metabolism, and is anti-inflammatory, leading to healthier, more painless menstruations. It also calms your nervous system and regulates your hypothalamic pituitary axis, which is useful for calming the mental symptoms associated with premenstruation and menstruation. Make sure to use magnesium glycinate or citrate, which have the best bioavailability and the least amount of laxative effects. Zinc is another essential mineral for a healthy menstruation. 
It too lowers prostaglandins and improves uterine blood circulation. Having a zinc deficiency can result in a host of menstrual cycle issues, including menstrual pain. It is anti-inflammatory, essential to the action of all hormones, including your thyroid. It naturally blocks androgens, and it also improves the health of the hippocampus, thereby calming the HPA axis. You can take zinc citrate or zinc picoslinate, which always should be taken with food because it can be a little hard on the stomach. Another supplement to consider is turmeric. This is a powerful anti-inflammatory herb with the active ingredient curcumin. It too reduces prostaglandins as well as lowering estrogen levels, which will make heavier menstrual flows lighter. For best absorption, take turmeric with black pepper. Next, you might want to consider supplementing B vitamins. B vitamins improve GABA and serotonin, which act as calming neurotransmitters, thereby reducing stress and improving anxiety. And these are helpful in the premenstrual phase for calming PMS mental symptoms and dealing with stressful situations that may arise during those weeks. Another really popular one here is fish oil because these supplements contain the omega-3 fatty acids EPA and DHA plus vitamins A and D and have been known to improve menstrual symptoms within three months. And this is probably because of omega-3s promoting anti-inflammatory prostaglandins. So prostaglandins can also be anti-inflammatory and omega-3s help boost these. So in this way, they can be helpful. Lastly, there's infusions, which an infusion is basically a long steep tea. And what you're trying to do with steeping the tea for a long time is to release water-soluble chemical compounds that are in an herb. One herb that is particularly effective at relieving menstrual symptoms is red raspberry leaf, a known uterine tonic, and its effects are widespread, toning, nourishing, and strengthening the uterine muscle, improving labor outcomes, and preventing hemorrhaging and excess bleeding. It contains many minerals, especially calcium, polypeptides, and tannins, all playing a part in its active properties. Berberine is a phytonutrient found in a few different plants like golden seal and barberry that is particularly helpful for endometriosis because it has a positive impact on the intestinal tract. Particularly those with IBS or SIBO can benefit from using berberine, which is going to have a positive effect on menstruation. Berberine is an antimicrobial herb which can reduce bacterial overgrowth inside the intestines improve insulin sensitivity, encourage ovulation, and prevent excess production of androgens. It has even been shown to slow the progression of adenomyosis and endometriosis sufferers may also want to consider its use. Berberine should not be used if you're pregnant or if you currently use other forms of medication. Our summary of strategy two is to focus on warm, whole foods, particularly animal foods with rich mineral content, avoiding raw and cold foods before you bleed, avoiding pasteurized cow's dairy from Holstein cows, and certain nightshade vegetables. Supplements-wise, focus on minerals like magnesium and zinc, B vitamins, omega-3 fatty acids, and the anti-inflammatory herb turmeric. Drink mineral-rich infusions like red raspberry leaf and integrate berberine if you have signs of gut or immune dysfunction. Strategy 3 focuses on topical solutions. These are antispasmodic or pain relief supplementation. And you may consider using certain herbs in the premenstrual and menstrual phases to ease cramping and reduce pain. The first one I'll talk about is black cohosh. 
It's an antispasmodic herb known for relaxing the muscle of the uterus. Thus, it relieves menstrual pain. It can be taken in tincture or capsule form leading up to menstruation. CBD oil, topical CBD oil in particular, can be applied to the lower back or abdomen to reduce cramping. I use Girls Who Spliff's Icky Stick or Green Revival CBD balms because they're combined with other topical anti-inflammatory herbs like plantain and comfrey that penetrate into the muscles and lessen pain. Lastly, there are castor oil packs. These are an incredibly powerful extract made from the seeds of the castor plant, a traditional medicine used particularly to help skin conditions, liver problems, and digestive issues, but also works really well in the abdomen to increase pelvic blood circulation. You'll simply want to apply castor oil to the abdomen, creating a barrier with a towel, and applying a hot water bottle, heating pad, or heated rice bag on top. Leave for 45 minutes and then wipe the area clean. Only use this ritual in the two weeks leading up to your expected menstruation and not while you are actively bleeding. So our summary of strategy three is to experiment with different topical herbs which penetrate into the muscles and nerves and reduce pain, like black cohosh, plantain, comfrey, CBD oil, and castor oil packs. Now we're reaching the final strategy, strategy four, or physiological solutions. This strategy for healing period pain is to look at the physiological solutions. Sometimes balancing the hormones, eating well, and using topicals can only get you so far, especially if you do have a physiological disturbance that needs more attention. Working with a practitioner who knows how to manipulate the body will be an invaluable resource to correcting the root problem and freeing the uterus, fallopian tubes, and ovaries so that they sit in a proper position and are able to do their job well. The goal of massage therapies are to guide the soft tissues using pressure and traction. You may want to look into Arvigo therapy, which is a non-invasive external massage of the abdomen meant to reposition the internal organs and specifically the uterus. Through this process, certain ligaments can be relaxed or weak ones can be toned, facilitating the movement of arterial venous blood, moving congested lymph fluids, and opening proper nerve signals. Arvigo addresses the entire abdomen, artery veins, lymph nodes, nerve innervation, and chi, and the work starts in the upper abdomen and targets the diaphragm. Loosening the diaphragm muscle ensures good supplies of red blood and oxygen, nutrients, and hormones makes, makes it to the abdominal and digestive organs, as well as the uterus. Now, uteri that are leading in a misplaced direction can also be manipulated back into a better physiological position with massage. Arvigo ensures that all the blood is flowing normally in this abdominal region of the body. The technique aims to cover arterial blood supply, venous drainage, which is the carrying away of waste material, lymphatic flow moving in and out, nerves functioning properly, and the energy flow of the body. The two core goals of Arvigo are to focus on homeostasis and hemodynamics. Arvigo has a significant self-care component as well, and there are YouTube videos online instructing you on how to perform some of the techniques at home. So it can be really great to work with a practitioner, but then take matters into your own hands and start practicing our therapy daily. Then there's pelvic floor therapy, which is another massage therapy worth noting, where pelvic organ prolapse and other musculoskeletal issues can be investigated as it relates to your menstrual pain. This therapy cannot just have good outcomes for your menstruation, but also other issues like incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic pain, 
vaginismus, or vulvodynia. And then there's acupuncture, the practice of stimulating specific points on the body through needles through the skin. This modality is also uniquely aware of blood flow and warm energy. As we know from traditional Chinese medicine, bringing warmth eases cramps and menstrual pain. It's been studied in this regard and seems to have positive outcomes controlling the duration and intensity of dysmenorrhea. So if you can find a practitioner who specializes in fertility, they may be able to help you in a unique way. So our summary of strategy four is that if nothing else is working, it may be time to meet with a practitioner to discuss a physiological component. Seek a trained Arvigo therapist, pelvic floor therapist, or acupuncturist for more guidance in this regard. To recap, I know we've gone through a lot of information. The four strategies of autonomous menstrual healing are ritualizing your menstruation, nourishing your menstruation, topical solutions, and physiological therapies. So I hope this is able to make you feel like you have a lot of options and choices when it comes to healing menstrual pain. Your pain is not aimless and your body is trying to tell you that it needs some help and guidance. So being able to listen to that is a necessary component of the healing process. I highly recommend also using fertility awareness charting to track the progress of your experimentation. You can use the custom category section to mark down when you have cramps, when you take supplements, when you perform a steam, and use it as a food journal when you can. This will allow you to see how your body feels about these treatments in a consistent way. You'll find that there will be many patterns revealed to you when you do this over many cycles. And you'll also need to understand that this is a process. And so it could take anywhere from three or more cycles to start to see some real shifts and changes. So I hope this episode was able to inform you about the different types of menstrual pain and to discuss the mind-body connection which affects our quality of life as people who menstruate. The four strategies to autonomous menstrual healing are meant as a guide to give you some ideas for a direction to move in. And whichever areas really speak to you the most, you should focus on those first. There's no hierarchy here. This truly is a process, so don't get discouraged. Just know that with the information, you're empowered to make your own decisions about your health and your wellness. The body's going to respond when the treatment is the right one. And I look forward to seeing us all feel better about menstruation. And there will always be people, I think, that will have a negative outlook on menstruating. And to me, that's okay. I'm not necessarily aiming to reach those people. But who I would like to reach are people who are frustrated, who are struggling, and who feel like they've definitely exhausted all of the conventional options already with no avail. So I think we all deserve to feel good and remembering how I felt when I experienced menstrual pain, it took a lot out of me. It was very debilitating. So to see myself heal in this way over time, you know, it's it's changed my outlook quite a bit. It's brought me closer to my body. And my goal with this work is to really share that experience with you and also that outlook with you so that you can use that as motivation to get yourself in that same place as well. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please hit share. You can find the Someone Somewhere podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Anchor app. And it means a lot to me if you could rate or review the show. It really helps people find it. This episode is brought to you by my fertility awareness education initiative, hashtag FamTaughtMe. 
You can subscribe to my Patreon to gain access to all of my blogs and member services at www.patreon.com famtaughtme. And please make sure to follow me on Instagram at famtaughtme to learn more and communicate with me. I'm available for one-on-one consultations and I'd love to work with you on your menstrual challenges. So of course, send me a message if you feel like that speaks to you and uh, we can talk about it. I'd love to learn more about you. This concludes episode 31 of the Someone Summer podcast. Have a great night.